0: Let's turn to Scripture and the reading of the Word. Before we go to Isaiah chapter 6, which is our main text for today, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, a parable, a story from Jesus Christ. Just, just two verses and in some ways, and you can think about how this relates to Isaiah chapter 6 as we read that in a moment. But I think in some ways these two verses capture everything this upcoming sermon is about concerning worship. Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and upon upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now let's go to the Old Testament, Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6, this remarkable account of Isaiah's worship in the presence of God. Hear God's word from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here, I am. Here am I. Send me. He said, Go. Go. And tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together. Father in heaven we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written Through Isaiah, your prophet, we ask that they would illuminate our lives now and transform us even as we continue to gather together in your name. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Worship, worship. I think if we consider the sermon title, what is worship for, there's something of an uneasiness that coming across that question at the first glance, and our minds tend to think that worship is abstract, theoretical, religious, odd, and there's some truth to that. If you think about what we're doing right now, we're gathered together in the name of the Lord. We don't see a physical manifestation of God or God manifested in the flesh, and yet we're calling his name, we're worshiping him, we're insisting over and over that he is, is with us. That he's drawing us to himself, even as we ask him to draw near to us. And what's fascinating is that the word worship speaks to perhaps the most human characteristic of all. Not theoretical, not abstract, not odd. So common, we forget that we're always doing it. The word comes from the, it's derived from the word worth. It means worthiness, or searching for worthiness, or ascribing worthiness, or acknowledging worth. And if you think about that, You're doing it every moment of your life. If I held up for you a a gold coin, solid gold and a silver coin, solid silver and then a regular old penny, each one of you, even just thinking about those, are thinking, well, the gold is worth more than the silver and the silver is worth more than just a penny. It's part of what we do. It's instinctive to us. We go through life analyzing, observing, evaluating considering, reckoning, estimating, acknowledging worth. And I don't think it's too soon to stop and think, you know, what is idolatry? It's ascribing to some created thing the worth that should be due to God alone. Isn't it fascinating that in Romans 1, verse 25, Paul says, that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Instead of going to the creator of all things and ascribing him worth, you content yourself with various various aspects of his creation and ascribe to them the worth that is due to God alone. And those things may not be worthless but they don't deserve the worth that is due to God alone. Consider the world we live in, the age we're in, and how it so often gives to family and prestige and to jobs and accomplishments, to the various items on a resume or to the various degrees that come through education, how it puts on all of those things, ascribes to them, acknowledges to them worth, even the worth that ought to be due to God alone, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, good, and triune God who thought of all those things, who made his creation consist of those things. Think about how our age is just so, so comfortable with a term like American Idol. There's the age we live in finding various aspects of creation a a beautiful voice the creativity that goes into making a song and saying there there's what we worship the american idol and this is an opportunity to stop and remember this whole idea of all of scripture that comes to us and says don't don't do that it's not just a breaking of the first commandment having another god before him worshipping the creation instead of the creator it's a path to despair it's it's a way to live a terrible life it's a way to always be grasping and reaching and to never arrive and to ultimately end disillusioned and disheartened ascribe worth to god that's what worship is for And we'll see throughout the course of the sermon how in that we have just really the greatest thought. It's more significant than any book that you could buy in the self-help section. It's fulfilling. Though we are here imminently, we're in touch with the transcendent, the God who made us, the true and living God who breathed into the first person the breath of life and continues to breathe through the Holy Spirit. We saw last week that we are are made for worship, and as we consider Isaiah chapter 6 and Matthew 13, that parable that we read, we'll just look at at two very simple headings. There's only a three-letter difference between them. The worth of God, the worth of God, and then the Word of God. And these are the ways in which we draw near to God and worship him. And last week, over and over, we heard about how we're made for worship, that this is who we are. And we say things like we're, we're made in the image of God, which, of course, we get from the very word of God. But think about that, that you as man and woman, male and female, you are made in God's image. If you consider that, in some ways what it's saying is you really can't exist for a moment without learning something about God. Because you reflect Him. You're made in His image. Now every moment is a moment in which some way or another God is teaching you about Himself. God is revealing to you His worth because you reflect Him. So just by existing all by yourself You are learning who God is to some extent because you're made in his image. But you're not just made in his image. You are certainly made in his image, but you're also in God's world. He made all things. He brought all things into existence. Everything bears the stamp of the creator God. You are creation among God's creation, made in God's image, in God's world, God's creation surrounding you, and if you think about it, God's creation sustaining you. And there's more. On your heart is written the law of God. Again, essential to being human, not just going through life, reckoning, evaluating, estimating, ascribing worth to various things, but thinking over and over in terms of good and evil, right and wrong. That instinctive way that we see certain things and say that's wrong that shouldn't be the case the reality that not one of us can watch an hour of the news without recoiling in various ways and saying that's terrible because the law of god is written on the heart we have this conscience that is over and over testifying to the holiness of god made in god's image living in god's world having God's law written on our hearts and speaking through our consciences, living as God's creation and even off of his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. You're living in a world in which God is always speaking. This is why we. one of the reasons why we have to shy away from saying something like, well, God spoke to me last night. God's always speaking to you. Everything around you testifies to him. He is declaring his glory, his worth. And that is all through what is called general revelation, which includes you made in his image. And of course, God speaks to us specifically, directly, in a special way, through his word, acknowledging that general revelation isn't going to bring you all the way that you need to be brought. That special revelation is there to speak to you about sin and the estate of sin and misery that we were born into through Adam and Eve, our first parent and parents, and to speak to us about the worth of God, not just being the fact that you're made in his image and able to speak and plan and do things, but that he is infinite and eternal and unchangeable, that he brought things into existence out of nothing, that he's the fountain of all good, that God is love, and that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These things are what special revelation tell us, informing our minds, teaching us all the reasons to ascribe worth to God. And, you know, it's here that we can think back to that tremendous statement by Augustine. You, O Lord, move us to delight in praising you. You have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. What are we doing today? What is today? It's a day of what? Rest. Worshiping the Lord is resting in the Lord. It's a part of, of the way we rest in Him. See how uh, Augustine began that. We delight in praising You. We're restless until we find our rest in You. God has made us and placed us in the world and written His law in our hearts and uh, has made us part of creation and living off of His creation so that in so many ways we're we're reaching, we're we're straining for, groping towards the God that in some ways we know and He comes to us He speaks to us, and we find our rest in praising him. It's remarkable to think about uh, what Jesus Christ said in that parable. You know, there's this merchant, and he, a merchant's one who is particularly qualified to ascribe worth to various things and you know this about precious jewels, pearls, that it's possible to find one that is so, so valuable, nothing else means anything anymore. That's still true today, right? Depending on how many carats the the diamond is, or the ruby, or what size it is, or anything along those lines, we all have this understanding that one jewel One pearl could be worth so much. Nothing else we possess matters. We could trade everything that makes up our net worth for that one pearl. And we would have so much in just that one thing because it's so, so valuable. And Jesus' point, as you might have gathered, is not to get into uh, buying and selling and trading jewelry. But he's saying this is what the kingdom of God is. You come into this kingdom. You take membership at a local church. You take vows. You profess the name of the Lord. You ascribe worth to the true and living God who reveals himself through creation and reveals himself in his word. And it's more valuable than anything else to the extent where you'd trade everything else for it. And you see this over and over and over and over in Scripture. Job has all these questions about God and his suffering, which is real suffering, trial, affliction, grief. And he never even gets the answer to all the questions he's asking. But how does the book end? Worshiping God in his presence completely changed Abraham in that city, right? All the comforts of whatever city life looked back, like all the way back in the time of Abraham. But God calls him to sojourn in enemy territory to camp perpetually among his enemies with his family. And he does it. The pearl of great price, the kingdom of God, the presence of God. The worship of the Lord. And we see that with Abraham. Altar after altar. Walking before the Lord in blamelessness. Worshiping the Lord makes it all worth it. It's amazing to think about Moses and all of the reasons he has to not go before Pharaoh as if you would need reasons in addition to the fact that Pharaoh was Pharaoh. But God speaks to him from the burning bush and instead of going on and on about how he can't speak well in public he commits to going and he becomes the leader that we know Moses to have ended up being. And with Isaiah we see something similar. Is listen to this job description in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 through 12. God says to Isaiah, go tell the people, listen, but don't perceive. Look, but don't understand. Render the hearts of the people insensitive. Make their ears dull and their eyes dim. Keep them from hearing with their ears, understanding with their hearts. Bring them to a point where they cry out, how long? That's a a ministry of judgment. That's a job description from God himself to... To Isaiah, saying, this is no easy task. Nobody wants to do this. There's no guidance counselor that's going to say, yeah, make that your career. I'm sure it will be tremendously fulfilling. But Isaiah's remark, even before he hears that, here I am, Lord, send me. We see the same thing Over and over in the New Testament, almost use this as a scripture passage for today, but that beautiful account of Jesus Christ speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. She's not only a Samaritan, but she's had five different husbands, and the one that she's with now is not her husband. So, immoral, impure Samaritan woman that Jesus, the male rabbi, Jew, is speaking to. It's just a glorious picture of Christ speaking to a sinner. What's the result? She's there to get water. She leaves her water pot and goes and tells everybody about Jesus. It's the revolution that came from worshiping Jesus by being in his presence. The apostles, think about even that. Jesus going up to these fishermen, follow me. Dropping their nets, becoming disciples. And of course, those same disciples who make so many mistakes in the Gospels become bold preachers of the Gospel, apostles, messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost. And what do they say in Acts chapter 5? They rejoiced to be worthy of the suffering, they were persecuted for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. But the pearl of great price, the kingdom of God being in union and communion with Jesus, having the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, had so radically transformed them, even physical persecution was a reason to be joyful. Stephen, who we heard about a few Sunday nights ago, being stoned to death, praying glorious prayers in the vein of Jesus Christ from the cross. John on the island of Patmos in exile, not worrying about how much longer he's got in this life, not worrying about where he's going to get his next morsel of food or bit of drink. What does he say in Revelation 1? I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. It's where we are now. Gathered together as the people of God, realizing the worth of God, ascribing worth to God, saying it's greater than rubies, it's greater than diamonds, it's greater than prestige, it's greater than retirement accounts. It's greater than everything. It's the pearl of great price. And it's even better than a pearl. It's the presence of God who made me in his image. At one point, C.S. Lewis wrote this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is what God does to those who worship him in spirit and truth, You forget the water pot. You forget the trials, the afflictions that are before you. Even if you're enduring them in various ways, you have the sense that God is with you. He's your God. He's going to lead you through. The same God who went to the cross has a cross for you, but he will not abandon you there. As we consider the The worth of God, we have already begun to do this, but considering the word of God. The way we realize his worth is through his word, through the different testimonies that we've seen in scripture. The various ways God has spoken about and that we're told about all of these various things bring us to a a point of worship. You know, us Presbyterians, we do love our terminology. So we have principles at work, and it's worth slowing down just a moment to think about. A regulative principle for worship. The dialogical principle for worship. Those are ways of speaking about the very word of God. We practice both of those things here, the regulative principle, the dialogical principle, that that God doesn't just describe worship for us, but prescribes worship, that in his word, he comes to us and says, here's how you worship me. Don't resort to your imagination. Don't come up with what you think will be pleasing to me. Let me tell you how I want to be worshiped. Let me tell you how to worship me in spirit and in truth. The regulative principle that God prescribes the ways he ought to be worshipped. And then this dialogical principle that God speaks to us and we speak to him. And we see both of these principles at work in, in our liturgy. And I think it's so helpful just to stop and, and consider this, that we... Ascribe worth to God together as the people of the Lord in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, as those who call upon the name of the Lord in this particular place. And the whole liturgy is the Word of God. He salutes you, He speaks to you. You come in after a week, beleaguered and weary. Aware of sin and failure throughout that week. And before anything else, God, through His own Word, says grace to you and peace. You're not your own. You're in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to come with that dirty laundry list and run through it all. You have grace and peace. Let me salute you. Let me begin by greeting you. You with that grace and peace that is yours through union with Christ. And though you are sinful, remember Isaiah, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. All you need to do is watch any movie, you realize you're a man of unclean lips, and at various points in that movie, you have observed that you dwell among people of unclean lips. But he calls you to worship him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Come into his courts with praises and thanksgiving. Know that the Lord is good. Ascribe him worth. You're called to worship. And it's not just God speaking to us, right? The salutation, that's various verses from the New Testament where we can draw on for that. The call to worship, various verses, Old and New Testament, strewn throughout all of the Psalms and in so many other places. The very word of God saluting you, calling you to worship. And then we respond by speaking to him, don't we? That's what a prayer is. They're usually led here, although we pray the Lord's Prayer in unison. Us speaking to God. It's a dialogue. The dialogical principle of worship He comes to us through his word and speaks to us. We respond speaking to him, him calling us to worship, us invoking him to come to us because our help is in the name of the Lord. And we confess our sins. We're aware that we're men of unclean lips, that our last week has been a week full of sin and failure. We don't hide this from the Lord. We go to him. We lay it before him. We speak to him and say, we have sinned against you, O Lord. And what's his response in the dialogue of worship? But from one point or another of his own word as the holy, holy, holy God say you are assured of pardon. You are forgiven of, of your sins isn't it glorious Isaiah chapter 6 again Isaiah woe is me I'm undone I'm unclean Isaiah 6 verse 7 he touched my mouth with a burning coal and that angel said behold this has touched your lips your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. You see the dialogical nature of worship in Isaiah chapter 6, even in heaven? Isaiah speaks to God with a confession of sin. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm unclean. God speaks to him through a messenger, an angel. Isaiah doesn't clean himself up, dust him off, himself off read a self-help book and get better. But in his fallenness, in his impurity, in his uncleanness, he confesses his sin to God. And through an angel, God purifies him. And it's not of Isaiah's own doing. It's a gift of God. And so we gather together for worship in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And God hears our confession of sin and draws near to us and speaks to us, telling us our iniquity is taken away. Our sin is forgiven. We've been purged, not by a burning coal, but by Jesus Christ, his perfect sacrifice in our place on the cross. So what happens? What do we do after that? We burst forth into song. And what is a song? But a confession of faith set to music, a prayer set to music, a summary of God's Word. The next step, the next element in this dialogue between us and the Lord, where we're singing Him praises, saying it's it's not enough to say a confession of faith in unison. It's not enough to pray a prayer in unison. We have to burst forth in song to praise the Lord with a joyful noise, with glad tidings, to come into his courts with praising and thanksgiving, to know that he is God and that he has saved us and made us the sheep of his pasture. The reading of the word, the preaching of the word, the receiving of the word, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might ascribe you worth, that I might worship you instead of being an idolater and sinning against you. And if there could be anything better than hearing the holy, holy, holy God greet impure sinners with grace to you and peace, It's the fact that after that dialogue of worship, that back and forth between sinful people and a holy God. He says, don't leave, don't go out back into that world. (laughs) Without hearing blessing. Isaiah was purified. He was assured of pardon. You've come into his courts. You've confessed your sin. You haven't held back from God. He's drawn near to you, assured you of forgiveness, reminded you of his grace towards you through Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice on the cross. And he says, don't go into the rest of your life without realizing The same God who had you baptized into his threefold name is the God who pronounces his threefold blessing on you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you as you leave this time of corporate worship and go out into the week before you. The word of God bringing you step after step, element after element, thought after thought to ascribe worth to him who is to have no other gods before him. I've said this a number of times in various services and a number of times today, also during Sunday school. In the inquirer's class, that it's glorious to realize, if you want the unity of what it is to be a Christian, the fact that we're one body. He's the vine, we're the branches, we're the body, he's the head. We are united to Christ. So if you want the unity of our Christian story, we can find the language for that in Scripture itself. And many, many places in Scripture you can go and, and read your own testimony. The glory is that as you consider the various aspects and moments of your life, you come across furniture that is unique to you and not shared by anybody else. That's the diversity. But for now, let me read some verses from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and spend time ascribing worth to the true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who through his own word tells you your origin story and your testimony as a Christian. And this isn't just for adults or teenagers. This is a letter that was written to a church that was made up of families in which children were specifically addressed to obey their parents and the Lord, for this is right. And that letter begins with this address that included those children. So for all of us, no matter what our age is, let's hear our origin story and testimony in the word of God itself, and ascribe worth to our God. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 8, and then chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God... Prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Hear the word of your God and worship him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that we would consider all the wealth and riches, all the prestige, all the glamour, all the various things that our age, our world, our culture shoves in our direction trying to get us to worship just about anything other than the true and living God. So work on us by your Spirit that we ascribe the worth that is due to you, to you alone, and that we delight to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day as the people of God, finding our rest, In you, in whom we pray. Amen.